I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in our series, Exodus. In Exodus, the Red Sea just sort of splits in half. Ordinarily, great bodies of water don't do that. So when we read about it today, is it strange ancient history, a fairy tale? Does it have anything to say to us now? Over the weekend, someone I know argued with someone else I know about the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this kind of thing happening. Uh, It's a strange phenomenon in which extended families and in-laws get together and someone brings up something weird about the Bible and people start arguing. Now that in and of itself is unremarkable. People have been arguing about the Bible long before you and me and they'll be probably arguing long after either of us. But the funny thing about this particular argument was that one party, as I understand it, badly wanted to read a a specific text as first and foremost about and for them. And the other party wanted to stress that the text in question wasn't actually about modern readers at all, that it was written to an entirely different people in a different time and place and culture. And this disagreement colors so much misunderstanding about what the Bible says and what the Bible is. If the Bible isn't to us in the first place, how can it have anything meaningful to say in the here and now? How can an ancient story not be written to you and me, but somehow be for you and me? Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus, the second scroll in the Hebrew Scriptures. For weeks now, we've been studying, digging deep, discussing the themes and stories of the book we call Exodus. We've been through the Israelites' slavery in Egypt, the burning bush, the plagues, the back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, all the stuff one remembers from Sunday school and whatever film adaptation of Exodus that you've seen. And all that culminates in one of the Bible's more spectacular scenes and images, really, the crossing of the Red Sea. When I was a kid, I received the story of the crossing of the Red Sea as kind of like a demonstration of God's power. I couldn't help it. This dude splits an enormous body of water clean in half so that people can, uh, an entire group of people can pass through the middle on dry land. So you read that and you go, well, I'll be darned. That's wild stuff. I guess God is pretty powerful. And that's not wrong, but there's more to it than that. For one, it's the same story that includes the burning bush, and all the plagues, and we, the reader, are intended to understand this scene of the Red Sea in the context of the entire story. Now, bear with me for the next five minutes as I collapse the story so far into kind of a truncated recap. So far, it's gone like this. In Genesis, yep, all the way back, in Genesis, God blesses human beings to be fruitful and multiply, but the first human beings are led astray by the serpent, and God's glorious collaborative project sort of goes off the rails. But God refuses to give up on human beings because, quite frankly, he made them up. And more than that, he loves them. So he promises to pursue, rescue, redeem, and restore them. Now, all that happens in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. So you're thinking, my God, what happens for the next 1,300 plus pages? It is In short, a complex literary magnum opus, a sprawling epic about really the lengths to which God will go to make things right between him and his beloved. Redemption in the Bible, 
It's not a single isolated incident. It is a complex process happening in all sorts of ways across generations and centuries in the world, revealing itself ultimately in the most beautiful and unexpected ways. But not before a lot of other compiling salvation stories allude to, build to, foreshadow, introduce, and reintroduce the ongoing motif of redemption. Exodus, for example, is overflowing with allusions back to Genesis. In Genesis, God blesses human beings to be fruitful and multiply. They become enslaved by an evil oppressor. In Exodus, the people of God have become fruitful and have multiplied, and an evil oppressor rises up once again to enslave them and to thwart God's blessing. This oppressor, Pharaoh, who's sort of a stand-in for the serpent, the new serpent, attempts to curb God's blessing by commissioning the genocide of Hebrew, newborn Hebrew boys, but one of them escapes this terrible decree, is given the name Moses, and through a series of incredible circumstances, he ends up growing up within Pharaoh's household. But eventually, the reality of Moses' world, which is kind of the enslavement of his people as a fixture of his comfortable everyday life, eventually it wears on him. And in a single fit of vengeful rage, Moses kills an Egyptian, one of the oppressors, is found out, and he flees Egypt altogether. But God goes after him, finds him, brings him out of hiding, and into God's incredible plan to rescue Israel. But the really fascinating thing is that God's redemption strategy for Israel acts simultaneously as a gracious plea for Egypt's repentance. God's plan was and is always to work through a person or a people to save all people. So God, through Moses, invites Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to release Israel. But you know the story, Pharaoh just won't do it. And God provides these incredible, miraculous horrors as warnings, punctuating each divine feat with a renewed invitation for Pharaoh to change his mind, repent, and let Israel go. But Pharaoh, as the author says again and again and again, hardens his own heart against God. So eventually, having begged for Pharaoh's willingness and not getting it, God then enters into his unwillingness and allows chaos and decreation to ravage Egypt, which eventually culminates in the death of many of Egypt's firstborn, including Pharaoh's. So, Pharaoh, now a broken man, devastated, releases Israel. All these things, the burning bush, the Sinax, the mercy, the miracles, the death of the first, all that, they have been components of Yahweh, the Creator God's, mounting, ongoing redemption plan. And then suddenly, just like that, Israel is free. They set off into the desert. But Israel's freedom from slavery in Egypt is not the end of the redemption plan. We know, for example, from psychology and really from human history, that human beings often prefer the comfort of the familiar, even if the familiar is terrible. If you listen to stories from those who have endured uh, abusive relationships, when asked why they didn't just run for their lives, many will explain, I was scared, scared to leave that which is heinous, but familiar, scared of what happens when you go. What keeps people in terrible situations? What causes Stockholm Syndrome or what makes those who have spent decades in prison unable to comprehend life beyond bars? Israel, throughout the Exodus story, grumbles against both Moses, the guy who came to set them free, and God, the one who's setting them free, 
both of whom have come to put an end to their enslavement and their suffering, and Israel grumbles against them in the language of the text. So there's this fascinating paradox in that the author of Exodus and the Israelites themselves are very clear that life in Egypt is not good. It's terrible, actually, and that they are being abused and oppressed and even killed, but they are reluctant to leave Egypt. So as the story goes on, the author continues to showcase both Yahweh's tender patience and his ferocious love. Here, I'll show you what I mean. Look at Exodus chapter 13, and let's read beginning with verse 17. The story goes that when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. And listen, this line is important. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Remember that for later. There is so much in just these two verses. Notice, Israel has now been set free, but God continues to lead them. He didn't just set them free and wash his hands up and say, good luck, I did my part, you're on your own. He doesn't enter into their lives, do an amazing thing, and then step back to see if they live up to his gift of salvation. God sets them free, and then God leads them out of slavery and into what's next, and he continues to care for Israel by guiding them away from catastrophe. But also notice, God does that by taking them the long way. The process of redemption, avoiding destruction, takes longer. But Israel doesn't know that. God knows that. He sees something that they don't. So stay here with me for just a minute. Remember, in the scriptures, no word is wasted. Every detail has incredible implications. Earlier in the story, God sent Moses to confront Pharaoh And Pharaoh, the first time he heard, was so incensed by the confrontation that he made life even worse for Israel, and that was all part of the redemption process. All those miracles, the blood and frogs and hail and locusts, God pleading with Egypt when he could have just crushed them and set Israel free, they were all parts of the redemption process. And God has willfully involved himself in this process, not as some kind of distant puppet master, but as one who is with Israel. Look at verse 21. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So God takes Israel the long way, knowing something that they don't, but he goes with them. He doesn't just give them instructions and stand back. He goes ahead of them. The author has set this stage for what follows by depicting Yahweh leading his people, going before them and going with them. Now, turn over to the next chapter, chapter 14, and let's read beginning with verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Skip down to verse 5. Now, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. 
So Israel has taken the long way out of Egypt. They're camping by the Red Sea when, meanwhile, Pharaoh recants Israel's emancipation, gathers up an army and says, let's go get them back. Now skip down to verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, you could easily uh, make fun of Israel in this scene. Oh, wow, all these miracles, and they still have no faith. But this is actually a pretty understandable reaction, really. You've got legions, apparently hundreds and hundreds of thundering chariots, closing in behind you, and the only thing in front of you is the sea. So that's checkmate. Uh, And if you know the story, watch what happens next. Verse 13, Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. Whew, okay, so here we go. Remember what we read earlier? The Israelites went out of Egypt, and I quote, ready for battle. So it's about to go down. Watch this, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What? I thought Israel was like an army ready for battle, and apparently their strategy is to stand still. Verse 15 goes on, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on the dry ground. And then here it happens, verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right And on their left, God, who had been leading and walking with Israel all along, suddenly makes a way where there had been none. And the exact moment when hope seemed entirely lost, God obliterates hopelessness by creating redemption in the very place it seemed most impossible to occur. But it's not just about a way forward. Remember, Yahweh will fight for his people in the language of the scriptures. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord, Yahweh, is fighting for them against Egypt. God as he is leading his people through the split ocean and into hope in the future, begins to confound the forces of darkness, ultimately bringing them to complete and utter ruin in hope's wake. And that is the part of the story with which most people with any familiarity with Exodus are already well aware, the whole sea splitting in half thing. And maybe some of you upon hearing that story, understood it like I did as a showcase of God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful. He can do crazy stuff like that, and that's true. Or maybe, for you, it was more about how God came through for his people, and you imbibed the story's meaning as reassurance that God can do something amazing to come through for you in your hour of need, which is also true. But remember, Though this is, in many ways, the climactic scene, at least of this part of the story, it still belongs to the entire narrative, 
and the story isn't over. Scholar N.T. Wright wrote that there are two liberation journeys in Exodus. The first, to get Israel out of slavery. The second, to get slavery out of Israel. God brings Israel out of bondage. But years of slavery and their lingering effects across generations don't dissolve by simply relocating people. You need an entirely new way of thinking and an entirely new way of life. Everything has to change. So, to end tonight, as familiar a story as this is for some of you, I'm sure, I want to ask the obvious question anyway. How? How does everything change? In what ways must everything change for us to truly move from bondage to freedom? In this story, the first way everything has to change is that Israel's relationship to something more powerful than themselves has to change fundamentally. Because for centuries, Israel's relationship to a higher power was that of slaves and slave drivers, the oppressed and the oppressors. And now, after more than 400 years, they will suddenly encounter for the first time in generations a ruler with a solitary will to love them and do them good. And that radical shift in dynamics is something almost no human being can just accept immediately. Children who have known only scarcity and poverty when adopted into homes of plenty, they continue to hide and hoard food, convinced by time of the necessity to do so. And the adoptive parents can say with their mouths, you do not need to hide food in this home. But the child can't hear that, not really, or not yet anyway. They'll have to experience it to know that it's true. Those who have been devastated by adultery often feel as if they cannot silence their worry that those they love will betray them. The person who has been hit can't stop themselves from wincing when someone raises their voice in anger. On a day, Israel's oppressor is gone, and a good and gracious shepherd has taken his place. That is a change so significant that it cannot be adequately captured in an analogy. To have centuries of oppression embedded in the DNA of an entire people across generations, to only ever know the entity in power as cruel, exploitative, dehumanizing, objectifying, as a constant threat to you and your friends and your family and your children, and then on a day to have someone not only say but demonstrate that is all over now. My only intention toward you is to love you and to do you good. That's not just a new relationship to that which is above and beyond Israel. That's an entirely new understanding of the people of Israel themselves and the way the world works. We are not objects they are learning for the first time. We are not disposable tools in service to an oppressor. We are not meaningless. We are the beloved of the one and only creator God. Love is not just a power unto itself. It has the unique ability to change the beloved. So I've been married to my wife, Abby, for 15 years now, and uh, we've you know, been an item for longer than that. She's been my best friend in the world for some 18 years. There's, there's no other person that I admire more. And words of affirmation mean a lot to me. I like words. comes with my line of work. Uh, so when just about anyone offers up any sincere kindness, that honestly means a lot to me. But when my wife, Abby, blesses me with her words, 
she does more than just make me feel good. She shapes the person I'm becoming and my spiritual formation, the person, because the person I admire most, my, my love, these thinks these things about me. She calls me up to which she has spoken, and in speaking it, makes it more true over time. And as a church of like a million little kids, I'd be remiss not to remind the room that few people possess this incredible power more than parents. Read just about anything psychological or theological, and you will find that your children will live up to and into what you speak over them or what you don't speak over them for better or for worse over time. In Israel, they're God's children. The crossing of the Red Sea, incredible a scene though it is, is just a moment in an ongoing and frankly often painful story of redemption. In one sense, this isn't a story about you or me, in the specific sense anyway. It's actually about a group of people, a real group of people, thousands of years ago, far, far away in a different culture, written in a different language even. It's not about me and my little life in the here and now, so very far from the world of the page. In one sense, the author did not intend for this masterful literary chronicle of actual events to be read like Aesop's fables as some kind of like allegorical life lesson for whoever the reader might be, whenever the reader might be. This story documents history, yes, and we're meant to understand it as such. But in another sense, this is absolutely a story for you and me and for tonight, now. Part of the incredible dynamic of the scriptures is that they have human authors with very unique intent anchored in their times and places and cultures, but they also have a divine author who inspired the human authors to say what the Spirit of God wanted them to say, not just then, but across centuries. And the divine author speaks through the human authors across time and space. And in that sense, the scriptures, these stories, this story, are for and about you and me and right now. It's our responsibility as thinking disciples of Jesus, to neither reduce the artistic majesty of the scriptures to mere moral allegories curated by God for the reader's individualistic sensibility, nor as nothing more than antiquated history that stopped speaking to any audience with meaningful urgency thousands of years ago. So, this week, I read the story and read it again. It's hard to, you know, re-familiarize yourself with a story you feel as if you can say from memory. I was attempting to occupy that tension um, between what the story means to me and what the story meant to them, and I was thinking about my tidy little life. I know many of you um, have known terrible tragedy and tremendous suffering, but maybe some of you, like me, don't really have a ton to gripe about, and sure, we've all known pain like human beings, but maybe, by and large, it's, it's been a pretty decent run so far. My family wasn't poor growing up. My parents were Christians, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but a loving family, and I navigated my doubt and cynicism, as all of us must, and I made it back to the other side with my faith intact, and now I have my own family, and again, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we love one another, and we're doing pretty good so far. What do I know about Pharaoh's army behind me and an uncrossable sea before me? Some of you know that, you know, some years ago I went through a pretty dark season during which years of unaddressed self-hatred sort of crescendoed and 
my interior world secretly became a very dark place. Not secret anymore because I went and put it in this book that I wrote and in the opening lines, no less. So there goes my privacy. I think about that at the time. And I don't mean to glamorize healing to the brink of fantasy, but God and my community and my wife especially were patient and they were full of grace. And across years of hard work, that whole season now feels so distant. It's almost like it happened to someone else. And then a few months ago, I was going through a, a discouraging spell as a, as a leader of church in my role and my job and everything. Not the end of the world. These situations come and go. It's part of the job, part of being human, relational, all that. But this one was kind of stressful to the degree that I was making myself physically sick from it. And during one particular uh, heated conversation, some pretty nasty stuff had been said about me. And, and suddenly I felt that phantom of the old self sort of drift by in a moment, just for a moment. It didn't overtake me or even really, you know, penetrate and inhabit my thoughts or feelings in a significant way. It was more like a sinister nostalgia. Just for a moment, I remembered, oh, that's how that felt back then. And then the moment passed. And I think that because I experienced such incredible healing and because that old self seemed so distant, so alien even, I often assume, by default, that it no longer belongs to my story at all. But then it passes in a moment, like a, a gust of freezing wind, and I remember that that's in me. It's in my story. Or something else reminds me. My son will have some fierce emotional reaction to some small thing, and even as a little boy, I see myself in him. The truth is, that all of us, this side of resurrection, remain works in progress. A work in progress is unfinished and thus imperfect and in want of being made better, made whole, made complete. But we can't be made entirely whole, not yet anyway. So I've been asking myself what it means to stand between the past, that person that's in me, that story that I've lived, and the waters, the future, the impossibility, to wait in a place of overwhelming despair or impossibility and believe that God can and will show up. And as I read the story and read it again, the one verse that jumped off the page was chapter 14, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And the more I read it, I began to understand it two ways. The Lord will fight for you, as in Yahweh will do the fighting so you don't have to do it. But I also read it as the Lord will fight for you, as in Yahweh will fight to have you. He will fight to keep you and to love you. So, either way, be still. That word still is translated from the Hebrew word karash. It's a fascinating word that really can mean a, a, a spectrum of things. It can mean to engrave or to kind of dig in, or it can mean to just be silent. So other translations have it, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent, or the Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. Or the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. But however you interpret this quiet, this stillness, that peace. It's anything but total passivity. That can't be what it means. God opens the sea itself, and then Israel has to pass through with faith that God would hold the waters up as they go, 
and that he would lead them. They don't know where they're going. Remember, at this point, they've been hopeless except for his directions. Ordinarily, the sea doesn't split in half, so I'm sure part of you is thinking, oh my God, this thing's going to collapse as we go. Redemption is completely contingent on trust. It wasn't just Israel escaping Egypt and the story's over. It's Israel walking in trust into the future. In the story of the Scriptures, we are not only saved from something, but we are saved for something. Redemption, salvation, is about so much more than escaping evil or avoiding hell or getting better. It is about the dry ground and the way forward and the trust necessary to be led into hope and tomorrow. So, as you look behind you, what do you see? What oppressive force seems to close in from behind in seasons of darkness? Is it the the person you used to be or the damage that was done to you, something that happened, a tragedy or trauma, an old way of thinking, a destructive habit or, or pattern of behavior? Are you struggling your way out of a season of doubt or listlessness or distraction, wanting badly to be led into what God has for you and your community and your family and your life. And when you look before you, what do you see? Is it the addiction that can't be broken or the laziness, the listlessness you can't seem to overcome, the cynicism, the disbelief that you can't unthink, the doubts that you can't push away? From where you stand, hopeless in impossibility or idle on the plateau of stalled discipleship. You wanted to be someone else by now, someone taking spiritual responsibility for your own life and for your family and your vocation or your dream, whatever it is, but the days erode and you feel no closer to union with the Spirit of God, no closer to spiritual maturity than the year before. Is the obstruction before you evil and chaos, or a fog of confusion? And what would it mean to call on God to split either thing in half and then be quiet and be still and hold your peace and in trust go forward? Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to speak to us. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.